I want to begin this morning with an illustration. Let's say you were to go out sometime this year and buy a brand new, because it's, we're in East Texas, let's say truck, okay? For you Chevy fans, you go out and let's say you go buy a 2017 Chevrolet Silverado High Country V8 four-wheel drive crew cab long box, all right? Or uh, for you Ford fans, and 2017 F-150 limited super crew cab. Or Dodge fans, 2017 Ram Longhorn V6 four-wheel drive crew cab. Until I've done my homework, right? Awesome trucks. Let's say you go out and you buy that brand new truck. You've just bought yourself the latest and greatest Ford, Chevy, or Dodge truck around, right? For one year. Then what happens? 2018 rolls around. The new model comes out. And what happens to your new truck? It becomes the older model, right? Replaced by the latest and the greatest. Now, when 2018 rolls around, does that mean that your 2017 truck was never any good, never useful, never needed? Of course not, right? Still a great truck. Let me, let me bring it down a little bit. Consider this illustration. Let's bring it down to where more people are, and uh, then I'll tell you where we're going with this illustration. Leslie and I will often do this with cars that we buy. When we buy a car, it's normally better than the current one we have. And what we do is we try to drive those cars until the wheels fall off or the door falls off. For those of y'all that know about our van, that happened recently. Leslie, not knowing her own strength, pulled the door right off the... No, that's not what happened, but we should have got it fixed before that time. But uh, normally that's what we do. Uh, with the van, we put the door back on. We're still driving it. But normally we drive them until we can't drive them any longer and by that time, a newer model of car has come around with, with better features and better shape, and we'll put the old aside for the new. But let me ask you again, in that situation, does that mean that the old was never good, never useful, never needed? Of course not, right? Normally the case is that our old car fulfilled its purpose, and then it is replaced by something that is newer and better. And that is the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making about Jesus when comparing him to God's older revelation through prophets, God's older mediator Moses, God's heavenly messengers, his patriarchs, his priests, and his old covenant. That has been his argument in Hebrews chapter 1. There's nothing wrong with Moses, nothing wrong with angels and patriarchs and Old Testament prophets and priests and the Old Covenant. Jesus is just better. He's, he's better. That's the point. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We are continuing our series through Hebrews entitled Jesus is Greater. And the reason... This series has that title is because that is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to drive home to this first century Jewish Christian audience. And with all of this talk about Jesus being better, 
superior to prophets and to angels and to Moses and to Joshua and to Aaron and the priesthood and the, and the old covenant made with Moses. With all this talk about Jesus being greater, a Jewish person in this day reading this might be tempted to ask the question, then what was with what we had? Was what we had with Abraham or Moses, Aaron, Joshua, the Levitical priest, the Old Covenant, was it, ever, was it never any good? Was it not ever needed? When it comes to the issue of Jesus being a better priest associated with a superior priesthood, one might ask the question, was there ever any need for the priest of, of old? Was the Old Covenant pointless and worthless and, and no good? And the answer is, yes, there was a need for the priest of old. And no, the old covenant was not pointless, worthless, and no good. That's, that's what the author of Hebrews is going to show us in this passage that we're going to look at this week and next week in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. We are going to learn in this passage the significance of the old priesthood and the old covenant. This is a wonderful passage of scripture. There is really a lot here. This is one of those passages that, that I could camp out on for weeks. And oftentimes when a pastor says that, he means he has nothing more to say. But I don't mean that here, okay? I really mean we could spend weeks on this passage, but for the sake of time, we're just going to spend two weeks on it, all right? This passage and the setup of the tabernacle and how each of these paint a picture for us of Jesus and the work that he came to do is definitely worth a second look by you in your study guide that you received on the way in and your bulletin. I would encourage you to go back over that Throughout the week, that study guide is going to take you right back through what we're talking about today and also do some extra study of your own. I've included uh, some more handouts out there and you have hopefully your insert for this morning. We are going to learn in this passage that old, in reference to the old covenant, does not mean bad. It does not mean evil. It does not mean worthless. It simply means old. In its day, it was the best thing going, but it's a new day, right? We often describe the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in a way where it seems as if we're pinning the two against one another. They, we, we oftentimes, we, we sort of present these as competing covenants, but that is not the case at all. In fact, the opposite is true. They work together. The old, we've said, was never meant to be permanent. It pointed to the new, and when the new arrives, it replaces the old. No more need for the old. It's been put aside, replaced by the new. Like we learned last week, the new covenant is similar to the old covenant in, in many ways, but there are some significant Differences And again, if you missed those sermons, get online, fellowshipjacksonville.com, listen to those, or subscribe to our podcast. You can listen to those, okay? But we, we have been learning over the past couple of weeks that the new and the old were similar in ways with superior improvements made to the new in key 
areas. We looked at some of those improvements and we'll look at more moving forward. But let me say this before we begin today. One of the main reasons the author of Hebrews spends so much time in Hebrews talking about the Jewish priesthood and the priesthood of Jesus and the Old and New Covenant is because we talked about this because in this day, the Jews had a major obstacle to overcome when it came to Christianity. They had a difficult time looking beyond the need for the Jewish priesthood and putting aside the ceremonial part of their law. They had a difficult time seeing Christ as a priest and a difficult time identifying that there was a new covenant with superior improvements. They had a tough time seeing that everything in the ceremonial part of their law was only ritual, only type, only symbol, temporary and transient. They, they failed to see that it was just a picture and not a reality. Let me give you a helpful illustration. I got my oldest daughter in here this morning, Ava. Sorry, baby, I'm putting you on. That's part of being a pastor's daughter. Putting her on the spot. But she went to camp this summer at uh, Pine Cove, all right? And this was the first time in her life when we went a full week without being able to see her or talk to her. And it was a lot more difficult for mom and dad than it was for Ava. She just kind of bebopped along and went and came back like it was no big deal. But uh, during the week, we had letters that we would send out to her, and they would send us pictures on the phone of her, on our phones. And so Leslie and I, whenever we'd get a picture, we'd get together, and we would look at those pictures, and we would like, oh, I wonder if those are new friends. I wonder if she's having fun doing this activity. We would read into all of those things. We read over her letter several times. I wonder what this means. I wonder what that means, you know? Well, let's say... That when the week was over, Ava returned home, and we just continued to look at those pictures and read that one letter she sent us and tried to make sense of what this means and, and what that means with her right there beside us. That wouldn't make any sense, would it? And that's not how we responded. What did we do when we got home? We put those pictures in that letter aside, and we had her tell us about her week. We put aside the picture because we had the reality in our midst. You with me? That's what the author of Hebrews is calling for here. The pictures are no longer needed when the real is in your midst. Shadows are no longer needed when the true substance comes. The old sacrificial system was good for a time. It was the best they had for a while until Jesus comes. Because it was difficult, though, for the Jewish people to see through this fog, the author of Hebrews looks at both of these, the old and the new, side by side, in the first part of Hebrews 9. He's going to first examine the old system and, get this, how it points to the superior Savior. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. He says this, Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. Now, in the New King James and the NASB, it says the first covenant had ordinances of divine service or divine worship. 
In the ESV, we are told that the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, I want you to see here, with this first covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses and with the priest, I want you to see it was good. It was good. These services, these priests did, the acts they performed, they were acts of divine service. The place where this priestly work was done was a place of holiness. There were regulations for worship, and who set those regulations? God. Yeah, Sunday school answer. God, right? It was good. It was just not meant to be permanent. Notice it's called the first covenant or the old covenant, which means if it's the first, there's a second, right? If it's the old, there is a new one coming. It was temporary. It was meant to be replaced. It was earthly and temporary place of holiness. God often reminded the Jewish people of how temporary this temple was, right? By allowing it to be destroyed as a punishment for their wickedness. And we've already said that this book, Hebrews, was written in A.D. 65, and we learn from history, five years after this book is written, the temple is going to be leveled again for good. So the first covenant was good, but it was temporary. Not bad, just temporary. He is going to show this to his readers by looking at the old and the new side by side. And this is typical for the writer of Hebrews. Remember, he did this with Jesus and the prophets. He held them up side by side. Jesus and angels, Jesus and Moses, Jesus and the priest, the old covenant that the priests were associated with and the new covenant that was associated with Jesus. And in each one of these comparisons, I want you to see this, the writer of Hebrews does not demonize the lesser. He does not demonize the old. He exalts the prophets. God spoke through them. He exalts the angels. They were God's messengers who held a lofty position. He exalts Joshua. He was the one appointed by God to lead God's people into the land of promise, to lead God's people into his rest. He exalts Abraham. He is the patriarch, the first father. He exalts Aaron. He is the head of the Levitical priest, and he exalts the priest and the old system. It was instituted by God. Divine worship took place there. In the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and later in the temple, those places were earthly places of holiness. So he is not running any of these things down. His words are gracious. He says in verse 1, the first covenant had regulations. It had rituals and ceremonies instituted by God. These were divine things laid out by God himself. For what purpose? Get this, to show us the Savior. I want you to write this down. The old system was meant to show us the superior Savior. Let me say it again. The old system was meant to show us the superior Savior. One more time. Repetition is the key to learning, right? The old system was meant to show us the superior Savior. And he continues on in this passage to describe for us the earthly pattern. I want you to see three things about this earthly pattern, and then I want to show you three things about the superior Savior. And I'm going to do this over a period of two weeks. I want you to see the sanctuary, 
the services, and the significance. And then I want you to see his sanctuary, his superior service, and his significance. Pretty simple, right? Well, let's begin by looking at the sanctuary. Look at verse 2. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Verse 4. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it, the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, the author here is simply explaining what is inside the tent, inside this tabernacle, this earthly place of holiness. I'm going to explain a little bit more, okay? I debated whether or not to do this. I thought this would be a good time just to camp out here and explain this. I'm going to go into a bit more detail this morning, filling in the gaps, because there are more details that the author of Hebrews leaves out that are significant. Now, the fact that there are some details left out does not mean that there is an error that is committed on the part of the writer of Hebrews. Remember the context. He is writing to a group of first century Jews. They're well aware of what's inside and outside this tent of meeting, this tabernacle. There is a lot of assuming that is going on by the author. He's moving pretty quickly through this to get to the main point. But we are in a different time, a different context. We need some gaps filled in, don't we? So let's look at what is inside and outside the temple. And I want to show you, again, how these things were shadows, pictures, pointing to the person and work of Christ. This is really cool. This is worth you coming in today. Look at this picture up on the screen. You don't have this one. This was just one that I found, which was a pretty good picture of what it looked like from an aerial view of, of uh, what the, the tent of meeting would have looked like. Let's get a closer look here. This is the one you have in your bulletin. There it is right there. Uh, first, notice at the uh, beginning of verse 2, we learn that the author of Hebrews is talking about the tabernacle, okay? So he's not talking to his Jewish audience about the temple, which would have been in place at this time before A.D. 70. He's taking them further back. Before there was this physical, immovable house built for God called the temple. The priest served in this tent or tabernacle. This was the earthly place of holiness the author is talking about. And I think he takes them to the tabernacle because it was the earthier of the two. It was the, the less permanent of the two to really make the point of the permanence of Christ and the, the impermanence of the, the, the old priesthood. So, so he's showing that at this time, the tabernacle, it was around just for a time. It was constantly in flux, up one minute and down the next. And though it was temporal, earthy and transient, constantly in flux, the tabernacle was very, very important. Again, old doesn't mean bad, doesn't mean insignificant, just old. At this time, the tabernacle was the most important place on the planet. Do you realize 
that there are more chapters devoted to the tabernacle and the temple than there are to creation? Should tell you how important that is, right? Very important. And one of the main reasons why is because it's just one giant picture of Jesus. It is. God laid it all out for us in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's concealed. In the New Testament, it is revealed. We see these pictures come to life through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The court was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. There was only one way in from the east. Now let's pause there for a minute and admit that that's a picture of Jesus, is it not? Only one way in to the presence of God. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, said that of himself, did he not? John chapter 14, clearly, I am the way, the only way. John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved, and he'll go in and out and find pasture. Perfect picture of Jesus. Folks, there is only one way to God, amen? And that is through Christ alone. So one way in. Before going in, notice outside the tent, there was a courtyard. In that courtyard, some very important furniture. The author of Hebrews does not mention this again because his Jewish audience would have been well aware of this. But entering into the courtyard, you first come to the brazen altar. Go to the next slide there. There it is, right there. It's made of a kale wood. It was about seven and a half feet in length. It was a big altar. Stood four and a half feet off the ground. The top was covered by a brass grate and the coals were underneath. Sacrifice was placed upon this and there were four corners. On the four corners of this altar were horns. This is what the animals were bound to when it was being sacrificed. It's a picture of Jesus right there, is it not? Our Lord was bound, was he not? to a wooden cross outside of Jerusalem and was our sacrifice for sin. Perfect picture of Jesus. Moving past that, we get to the next piece of furniture. Let's look at it. The next important piece there is the, the labor or the wash area. This was made of brass, and at it, the priest would, would wash their hands and also their feet. Things would get pretty messy in the courtyard, right, with the sacrifice. But this is also a picture of Jesus, right? Through his blood, what does Jesus do? He cleanses us. Amen? We sing this on Sunday mornings. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stain. That's what Christ has done for us through shedding his blood. He cleanses us from sin, right? Yeah, so these two things in the courtyard done outside of the holy place and the most holy place, apart from the presence of God, this sacrifice and this cleansing happens. The presence of God is within the most holy place, right? Think about Christ's sacrifice. Where was he sacrificed? Outside of Jerusalem? He was forsaken of the Father, we're told. 
as he is dying for our sins, away from God's presence. He was forsaken of the Father outside of Jerusalem at Calvary. You see, he was sacrificed for us, became sin for us. He shed his blood for us. He was forsaken by the Father for us. And through that great work, made a way for us to be cleansed from sin through his sacrifice. Great picture. Move past that, and we arrive at the entrance. One way in, when you enter in, there are two areas. Let's look at it. The holy place and the most holy place. There they are. The holy place took up two-thirds, 30 by 15. The most holy place was a perfect cube, 15 by 15. Only priests were allowed into the holy place. In the holy place, there were three things. The writer mentions two, assuming that his Jewish audience would know the third. He's in a hurry getting through this, not like us, right? So let's, let's briefly look at these three. In the holy place, next slide here, we see to the left is the golden lampstand. You've got this in your picture as well. It was beaten out of solid gold. Seven flames burned on this lampstand. The number of perfection and the lampstand was a picture that Jesus is in fact the light of life. To the right was the table of showbread. On it, every Sabbath laid 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the tribes of Israel, six in two rows. At the end of the week, the priest would eat the bread, and this, of course, was a reminder of God's great provision during the wilderness wanderings, right? After they're delivered from Egyptian bondage, before they enter into the land of promise. But this is also a picture of Jesus. Jesus is what? The bread of life. He's the bread of life. Not only does he shine divine light into our dark and dead lives, but he gives us life eternal. He is the manna who was sent down by God for us to give us life and give it to us abundantly and eternally to feed us and to sustain us. Now, before entering into the Holy of Holies, you have the altar of incense as well. The incense smoke rising from this is also a picture of Jesus and what he has done for us as our great high priest. Incense is often used as an illustration of the prayers of God's people. Listen to what David says in Psalm 141, verse 2. We have it up on the screen here. David says this. Next slide. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Folks, Christ has made this possible. Through Christ, through his great redemptive work he accomplished for us, we can lift up our prayers through him and our praise through him to God. And because of Jesus, they are like a sweet fragrance in his throne room. To those of us who go to God through Christ, Notice this too, this is interesting. Incense is tied to the most holy place. Now that's interesting because it's located outside of the most holy place. We learn that from scripture and from uh, your, your picture there. But look at verses three and four. We are told, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant. 
Now, did he make a mistake here because the altar of incense is located outside the most holy place? Well, listen, the smoke that comes from this altar of incense, not only did it fill the holy place, but also beyond the veil into the most holy place, which would have made the mercy seat very difficult to see, which I think, I believe, still shows that there is some separation there, but is also a wonderful picture of Christ. Because again, through him, we enter into the presence of holy God. The most holy place is mentioned in verse 3. The inner room was covered by a veil. Only the high priest was authorized to enter into this room once a year on the Day of Atonement. In this room was one piece of furniture, very important, the Ark of the Covenant. In it was Aaron's rod that budded, manna, and the tables of law. It was made of a kale wood overlaid with gold, and the lid was made of pure gold called the mercy seat. On this seat were two angels whose wings stretched over it and almost touched one another. This was the earthly throne of God. And in between the wings of those two angels, get this, God met with man. Right there. Exodus 25, 22. God speaks through Moses. Look at this up here on the screen. He says this, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. From above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, there I will speak with you, God says. There I will commune with you. But there's a major problem here. How many were allowed to go into this part of the temple? Tell me, how many? One. The high priest, right? Once a year, he had to get in, get out quickly, and no one was allowed to go in with them. That's not real access at all, is it? Not really. A little bit, but not much. But get this, praise be to God, that place, though great, was a mere picture of Jesus. Get this, you know what the mercy seat represents? Jesus? Does it not? He is the true mercy seat. He is the place where God and man meet. Through Christ, through his great person and work, through trusting in him alone for salvation, you are ushered into the presence of holy God. He is the true mercy seat. Aren't you glad that God no longer communes with men between the wings of angels in Jerusalem in a small portion of the temple, but he communes with man through his son, Jesus Christ. Christ is the mercy seat. The meeting place of God and man, through him we can commune with holy God. So that's the sanctuary. Notice now the services the services of the priest in the tabernacle. Look at verse 6. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. Let's look at the layout of the temple again. Let's go to that next slide. Remember, the first section was the holy place. The priest went in and there, out of there every day. They had a lot of, of, of priestly a task to perform, they had to trim the oil on the lampstand, put incense on the altar every Sabbath day. They went in, they changed the 12 loaves of bread out. They were in and out all day, every day. It was a nonstop, never-ending job. Again, also a picture of Jesus, right? 
We've talked about this. Christ is at work for us today. Though he is seated at the right hand of the Father in terms of the work that he has accomplished for us by way of our salvation, Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. He is our priest in the heavenlies, our priest in the holy place. Though he is high and lifted up, he is at work for you and me. He serves us continuously as our great priest. He does not stop bringing light and life into this dark and dead world. He does not cease leading his sheep to the Father as the good shepherd. He does not stop securing us and feeding us and growing us through the Holy Spirit. He does not stop ever. Aren't you glad that you serve a Savior like that? Aren't you glad that Jesus is your priest, believers? Aren't you glad that he is at work all day, every day on your behalf? Look at verse 7. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. This is the reference to that day, that day of atonement, Yom Kippur, that one day when the Holy the, the high priest was able to enter into the most holy place to offer sacrifice for the unintentional sins of the people. You see, they were busy making sacrifices throughout the year, but on this day, the high priest entered in to the most holy place to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, on the meeting place between God and man to serve as a catch-all for God's people. And here's how it went. The high priest would, would get up on that day very early in the morning and he would wash himself and put on some robes reserved for him on that day. He would put on this robe. Let's look at, the, uh, let's look at that slide. and You have it in your uh, handouts as well. There were some significant things here about this garment. Again, this is very cool. On the robe, on the shoulders, were two large onyx Stones. Do you see that? On each of those were the names of six of the tribes of Israel. All 12 represented on the shoulders. He also had a tunic which was on the breastplate, and on that was also 12 precious stones, each one having one name of one of the tribes, all 12 representative. He also wore a turban of fine linen, and on that was a plate pure shining gold and on it were engraved the hebrew word the hebrew words holy to yahweh and yahweh of course was spelled y-h-w-h there were no vowels included in that sacred name because none of the jews spoke that name they used the word adonai instead that was an unspoken name that was the sacred name of god they didn't dare speak it for fear of using it in an empty way and violating God's great command. But it said, holy to Yahweh. He, listen to this, he, he, he bore that on his head and the names of God's people on his shoulders and on his heart. Again, perfect picture of Jesus. Jesus came from heaven to earth, became one of us, lived a life of holiness unto God, did he not? And we're told that he came not only willing to save us, but able to save us. You see, he had God's people on his heart, but also on his shoulders. Not only willing, but he is 
Abel. Amen? Those some of the Old Testament priests that God, uh, that, that were uh, representing God's people, though they might have had God's people on their hearts, they never had people on their shoulders. They might have been willing, but were never able. Some were neither. Jesus is both willing and able to save. And he has come as our great king priest, as our king he has come, we've talked about this, he came to destroy the works of the devil, conquer sin and death, and rescue us and save us, and he does that through his great priestly work. He does that by laying his life down, acting as our priest in perfect sacrifice for sin. He has defeated sin and death for us through his death and resurrection. Christ has done this for us. The Old Testament priests couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. That's why they never sat down. They were constantly at work. There was no seat for them in the tabernacle because our sins were not satisfied by their work. They were pointing forward to the work that Christ was going to come and accomplish. Look at verse 7. But into the second, into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So again, priest had to offer sacrifice for himself and then for the people. When he offered sacrifice for the people, there were two goats, one that was killed and offered up, and the other was sent out into the wilderness, never to be seen and heard from again. One was a sin sacrifice, and the other is what is called the scapegoat, which is a picture of our sin being sent away, never to be applied to us again, right? It's a, it's a picture of atonement, and it's a picture of forgiveness. Our sins being remembered no more. Propitiation and pardon satisfying God's wrath set against us because of our sin and a picture of God saving us through Christ and wiping our sins away. That's what those two goats pictured. It's an incredible work, isn't it? Wonderful pictures. That's the work that was done. That's the service that was rendered. That's the work that Christ has accomplished for us. So we've looked at the sanctuary and the service, and we're going to have to stop. We're going to have to stop there. That was a lot. I know you're, you're full. Your plate is full. But next week, we're going to continue through Hebrews 9 by looking once again at the significance of the tabernacle and the, and the service of the priest, and we'll continue to see how this old system was meant to point toward the superior Savior. But before we close this out, let me end with a very, very simple conclusion. I want to end by asking you whether or not you are trusting in Christ alone as your perfect priest, as your conquering king, as your substitute in perfect sacrifice, as your Lord and Savior. Are you? Are you trusting in the king priest? who is not only willing, but able to save. Is Christ the Lord of your life? If not, would you give your life up and over to King Jesus today? We like the priest of old. We like the, the, the people of old. We are in need of God's forgiveness. 
praise be to God that he has made a way for that to happen. He has sent us the perfect representative who has offered up the perfect sacrifice for our sin. The Lord Jesus has come. He has laid his perfect life down as our perfect sacrifice for sin. And we're told that if we would turn from our sin, forsake our sin, and look to and trust in him alone for salvation, we will be saved. If you have not, today's the day. I urge you to do it right now today. Bow your knee to King Jesus today and be saved. Would you pray with me?